Well, good morning, church. How are we doing today? Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 6. And as we do that this morning, let's go ahead and stand as we honor the Word of God. So we're going to start by reading Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 9. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end to all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation. Who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. Both sure and steadfast. And which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we're alive this morning. Thank you for the very breath in our lungs. Thank you that we've been able to drive to church and come into this building and worship you. Lord, some of us, we take that for granted. Lord, help us to be thankful to the God of the Bible, the incredible things you do for us. Lord, and my one prayer today is for those who are hopeless, they would find hope. Or if our hope is low, that you would increase our hope in the God of the universe. So go before us in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Hebrews chapter 6 has often been a very difficult chapter to interpret. Some have even called it the devil's favorite chapter in the entire Bible. Now, why would it be called the devil's favorite chapter? Because he uses it to misinterpret, get us fighting with one another, 
and get his church going, well, I have the right interpretation or I have the right interpretation. So the devil loves to use this chapter to divide us, but we need to look at what it's saying so that we can live out the life God intends us to live out. Now, what are some of the confusing verses in this chapter? Let's look at verse three for a moment. And this we will do if God permits. Now, some people have a really difficult time with if God permits. What is God going to permit? Well, he talks about leaving the elementary principles of Christ and moving on to perfection. Now, that's not even the most difficult part of this scripture. It would be verses four through six. And they say, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they have crucified again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Now you talk about the verses that are very hard to interpret. These are at the top of the list because you have one group who says you can lose your salvation. And then you have the other group over here, no, I'm kidding, over here who says, no, you can't lose your salvation if you're a believer. But what this is talking about is those who maybe they've come to church and worship with us and been a part of what we're doing, but they've never truly been saved and they kind of fade into the background unnoticed and they're no longer with us. Then you have another group who says this is a hypothetical thing the author is talking about. If we get focused on fighting about what the interpretation is, we're going to miss something very important. This is a warning. This is a serious warning in Scripture. What is the whole book of Hebrews about? It's about don't drift, don't coast, don't be cavalier, don't neglect so great a salvation. That's what the book of Hebrews is about. But what happens when we get focused on the interpretation and we don't listen to warnings? You know, warnings are an interesting thing in our culture. How many of you guys love to read warning labels? How many of you have ever read a warning label even once in your life? Okay, a couple people have read warning labels. There was this one time I had some fireworks, and you can quickly see where this is going. You know on the side of the fireworks, in the very fine, small print, what it says? Warning, do not use in a different way than intended, correct? So one time I was at Ocean Shores, and I had a firework. So I decided that I was going to ignore the warning. I didn't even read the warning box, but I skipped it. And instead of putting the firework up like this, I put it on its side. Now, what do you think is going to happen? Do you think something good is going to happen or very bad? So I light the firework. And it's one of those ones that has about 10 shots in it. And, you know, they go up. Pew, pew. So it starts spinning. 
And the reason why it starts spinning is because it's round. So as it's shooting out, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is going to hit one of my family members. And it's spinning, and it, it got going really fast. Well, I was standing there going, this is really bad. <laughs> and then I was like, wait, aren't the la isn't the last firework in these, like, shots of fireworks the biggest started thinking i'm like i'm gonna kill somebody i'm gonna go to jail so as i don't know what happened but it flipped up did one normal firework and then the last one was huge and i was standing there like i don't know how it flipped up but it was by the grace of god now see our culture says warnings, we don't like warnings. But this right here is a warning about don't drift, don't coast, don't be cavalier, don't neglect so great a salvation, don't fall away. Have you taken that warning in this scripture today? Because it's very important, it's going to determine where you are going to spend eternity, heaven with Jesus or hell. It's a very important warning. And I, I'm sorry to say many Christians just go, yeah, yeah, yeah. That stuff in Hebrews, I got it. Take the warning seriously. Don't fall away because I've seen too many of my friends fall away from Jesus. Now the author in verse 9 turns a corner. Let's read verse 9 for a moment. But beloved, so he's turning a corner here. We are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. Now, I want to talk to the Christians in the room. Can I see by a show of hands who is a Christian in the room? Go ahead, raise up your hand. I'd just like to know who I'm talking to but beloved. See, he just gave us a very hard word, this author. And he says, but beloved. Do you, do you know who he's talking to? You and me, the church. He says, but beloved. Or we could translate it in our modern English, but I love you. I'm giving you this warning, but I love you. But you know what's cool is God also says, I love you. Do you realize God loves you? And I know we hear it in church all the time. God loves us. But do we really just take it in for a moment and realize God loves you? Now, can I talk to the non-believers in the room for a moment? And what I mean by non-believers is those who don't have their only hope in the cross of Jesus and him saving you from this world. If you don't have that hope, then you're a non-believer. So if you don't have that hope today, I want to say something. God is giving you this opportunity. He gave you the breath in your lungs to come to church today so that you can repent, so that you can come to him, so that you can be a part of the family of God and hear for the first time in your life from God I love you. And the gospel is 
open to you right now so that you can come into the family of God and be born again and have an incredible hope. And believers, we can be praying for those in this room who are non-believers that they will surrender their hearts to Jesus. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation. Believers, I'm sad to say sometimes we think salvation is boring. Sometimes we think salvation is just coming to church or salvation is walking down the aisle or raising your hand or nailing at your mother's bedside table and that's it. But look at what scripture says about salvation. We are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation. This walk with Jesus, it won't be easy, but there are things he has for us in this life to do that are going to come along salvation and be proof that we have a great salvation. So let's look at some of those things, and I want to frame this next section with how can we increase our hope in the Lord today? Verse 10 says, will you read with me? For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. There's a couple things in this verse I want to pull out for you this morning. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love. God puts his justice on the line. He says, I will not forget the things you as a believer do for me. Now, when I was a kid, after church one day, I said, God, I love you. And to show you, how much I love you, I'm going to tidy up the rec room downstairs at my home. Now, if my parents are in the room here, they're probably like, when did you ever clean up anything in your home ever? Well, at least one time because I remember it. That's how I know at least one time. And I said, Lord, I'm going to tidy up my toys and line them up. And, and this memory kind of pops into my head off and on off and on, and I don't always remember this memory, but I thought about it the other day. And let me ask you a question. Out of the billions and billions and billions and trillions times trillions of things God has to remember each day, each week, each year, do you think he cares about those little details, those things we do for him? And I hope the response would be yes, we do believe he cares about those things. We are a labor of love, the work we do for his name. Why is that very important to our hope? Why is that hugely important to us having hope? Here's why. Because if God forgot about the small things in our life or the things he said, hey, I'm going to remember this, do you think he might also forget about the big things like salvation. 
See, if he remembers the smallest things, that should give us confidence that he's not only going to remember the small things in our life that he says he's going to remember, but he's going to remember the big things like making sure that you are in heaven with his son for those who have believed in him in glory one day. And that's a glorious thing and that should increase our hope today to know that God doesn't forget. Now, I forget things all the time, but God does not forget. He doesn't forget your work and your labor of love. Now, in this verse, let's look at a couple things that are bad that believers believe or say sometimes. Let's look at some things that are bad that believers say sometimes. Verse 10 says, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Now, somebody could say, I love God but I don't like people. Or, I love God, but I, a very harsh word, don't like people. You could fill in the word yourself. So there could be somebody who says that. But I think we need to realize what we show towards his name, because anybody can say, I love God, but I'm not going to serve people. See, when we show love towards his name, it's in that you have ministered to the body of Christ, to believers, to people. You've ministered to people. Why does it say that? Why does it say that as a proof that you love Jesus? One of the things that comes along with salvation. Because people are difficult. People are hard to love sometimes. And you pour your life into loving them, but sometimes it's difficult. So we must love others. And it's a proof. It should increase our hope that these things come along with salvation. So God is going to give us a desire to reach out to people, to hand out water bottles to the homeless, to do something for him and to minister to the saints. It proves we love God. Now notice two other words in this verse. Ministered and minister. One is past tense, one is present tense. And the incredible thing with that is sometimes people might say something like, you know, I've done my time. I've served God when I was younger, and it's time to let the youth serve, and I'm not going to serve, I'm just going to retire. No, the thing is, those who love the Lord, they have ministered. See, there's a history that comes along with serving the Lord that comes along. But if we're still living, if we're still breathing, there's room for us to minister. Don't drift, don't coast, don't let the warnings of Hebrews about how we drift from God and how we coast in our relationship with him don't let this, those warnings go by the wayside. Why? Because the things that are going to accompany your salvation is a work for the Lord, and it's not working to earn your salvation. It's going to be joy to serve him. 
Now let's continue to look at our chapter here in verse 11. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope till the end. You're going to be a diligent believer. Why? Because God is going to do the work in your life to make you diligent and show you this hope until the end. That you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That word sluggish can be translated lazy. One of the things that will come along with this glorious salvation is that we won't be lazy believers, but will imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Who can we imitate? Who is our example? When we say, how do we, don't coast, don't drift, don't be cavalier, don't, don't neglect this faith. Now what do I do? What do I do for Jesus? How can I serve him? Listen, we have examples in three areas I'm going to point out. The first example I want us to look to and he's the most important one, is Jesus. So if we want to know how we imitate, we look at Jesus and go, how did he love people? How did he serve people? Who did he go and hang out with on Friday night? So he's our example of how we imitate this faith and we love people. Another place is the Bible. The Bible is full of stories like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and, and Solomon and, and Paul and all of these people like Timothy who are given for our examples so that we can run the race and see, hey, it's okay, they failed. I can continue on going just like they continued on because God is good and God is faithful. So we have Jesus as our example. We have the Bible with people. And another area I want to share is we have Christian biographies. Now, I'm passionate about this one. Less than the Bible and Jesus, but I'm still passionate about this one. We can learn from men and women who have gone before us. In the middle school room, what we have is a bookshelf. And that bookshelf have, has a ton of books on it. And what they are, are they're Christian biographies of men and women. Some are pastors, some are missionaries, some are writers, and a variety of people who our students can pick up a book and go, wow, I didn't know that this person had these same struggles I'm going through, but they were able to look to God for help. See, we can learn from that area as well. Let's keep going on in our chapter. But imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now it does not say imitate those who through faith inherited the promises. What would that do? That would leave out two very important words. It says, and patience. Why does it say and patience? Here's why it says and patience. Because life is difficult. How many of you know that? Life is difficult. 
This book is not just, oh, I love Jesus. But no, this book is written for real people, real Christians who are dealing with difficult life things. Life is very difficult. Children die. Husbands tragically pass away. Mothers are killed. Storms come across the country and floods come. I was at my dad's house the other day and he was watching the news and within 10 minutes there were three or four stories on shootings. What a tragedy that is happening to our nation. See, we need patience because it's not just, oh, I accept Jesus, everything's good. But life is difficult and hard. Realize there's heaven and hell. Don't coast, don't drift, don't be cavalier. Take the warnings. This is a book for serious believers. And we need patience that goes along with our faith that God graciously gives us. And by his grace will also inherit the promises. Now, verses 13 through 18 give us a story of Abraham. And we'll look at at least one of these points here in these verses. So read with me verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. Do you notice something a little strange in this passage? God swore. That's a little bit interesting that God would do that. See, when we swear, we appeal to something greater than ourselves. So you're in court, or at least you used to be in court, and they made you put your hand on the Bible. And you would say, I swear to tell the truth, nothing but the truth, or something like that. So we swear by something greater than ourselves. You wouldn't swear by something lesser than yourself. You wouldn't go, I swear I'm going to pay you back based off of my friend's credit card. Why wouldn't you say that? Let me tell you something about your friend. He's broke. He probably doesn't have a high credit card limit. And he's probably won't pay anybody back. So that would be something lesser. It, you, when you swear, you appeal to something greater. But God swears here. Now that's very interesting. Let's think this out logically for a moment. If God is going to swear, what does he swear by? He swears by himself. Now, that begs a question, and think with me for a moment. Is there anything greater than God? And that's really good that I heard the response. People were saying, no, there's nothing greater than God. Why should this increase our hope today? Why should this increase our hope in the Lord Jesus? Here's why. Because if God swears by God, then he's going to keep his promises. And that's a big deal. Could you imagine? Let, let me give you an example of this. You're at work, and you say, 
or, or your manager says, hey, I'm going to give you your dream vacation time off. How many of you guys would like your dream vacation time off, whenever it would be? Your manager says, hey, you got the time off. But then the boss comes in and says, hey, manager, we have this incredibly important thing and we need to hit this deadline. So everybody's working. What happens to your vacation time? It would disappear in a moment and you would have to work. See, the incredible thing is if God is the most supreme being in, in the universe, and he is, there's nothing else that can say, oh, you made a promise to Abraham? That promise is void. See, God, that can't happen with God because he is in charge. He's supreme. He's over all things, which should increase our hope because when we pray, we are talking to God, the boss of the entire universe. That should increase our hope. Let's go ahead and look at verse 19 and 20. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. This hope. And one of the main things I want us to take away from this passage today is having our hope increase this morning. This hope. Now we need to do some work here because in our culture, hope can be used in a couple different ways. Let me give you an example of something that we would use for hope in a bad way, but how often do we put that definition into the Bible? I want to make this so ridiculous that we never look at hope in this wrong way again. How many of you have ever heard the phrase, I, maybe a relative, maybe a family member, maybe a friend has said, I hope I win the lottery someday. Has anybody ever heard that? I hope I win the Powerball. I hope I win the Mega Million. What are the things that come to your head when you hear that? I hope this, I'll get a lot of money. Well, you'll probably think that'll never happen to you. There's no way, and even if it did happen to you, you would be dreaming. It's not going to happen. So the hope here is kind of a wishy-washy, I hope, but I don't really believe. How often as believers, though, do we put that definition in the Bible? When we hear maybe a pastor, maybe a worship leader say, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. And we're like, I don't know if that'll happen or not. See, it's so ridiculous that we put it there, but many times our mind goes, man, I, I just can't believe it. This hope we have as an anchor, let, let, let me just drive the point home one more time, and it's a little bit ridiculous. Who likes to go out fishing? Okay, after church, you go out 
fishing in the Pacific Ocean in the middle of it. And somebody has this incredible boat and they invite you on it. Now the captain of that boat, maybe it's your friend, comes down and says, you're on deck. I have this incredible thing to show you. It's so incredible that when you see it, you won't believe it. And he holds up something. And what that something is, is an anchor. And you look at him kind of interesting, and he says, this is the best anchor in the seven seas. You've never seen an incredible anchor like this. Now you kind of roll your eyes and you go, what have I gotten myself into? Because that anchor is from Walmart, and he got it from the kids section. So he has this anchor from the kids section and he is convinced. He is, hey, if I throw this overboard, it will not move. So what does he do? He throws it overboard. And then he says, good night, walks to his cabin. And at this point, you would be freaking out and being like, I'm in, I'm in big trouble here. I'm in huge trouble. What do you think will happen when the waves come and blow against that boat? You're going to go at least to where that wall is in distance, probably to the parking lot and probably to the apartments next door because the waves are going to blow and that anchor isn't going to do anything. Then another wave comes and go, where do you think you're going to go? Back to that wall, back to the other side of the parking lot. See, that's kind of ridiculous and we laugh at it, correct? But how often do we put that as our definition for hope? We have this hope that's an anchor for our soul. See, this is soul work God is doing this morning. He wants us to know that this anchor is what it is, is a hope that is sure and steadfast. Unlike that cheap Walmart anchor that's going to blow us this way and that way, hey, this anchor we have for a soul, it's going to hold us steady. Now, this anchor is kind of an unusual thing because it says, and which enters the presence behind the veil. Think Old Testament terminology for a moment. Think the tabernacle. Think the curtain that would shield the Holy of Holies. This anchor goes behind there. What's behind the veil? The presence of God. So this anchor, because the tabernacle is a picture of what heaven is like, is actually hooked in heaven. It's hooked to our Lord. Our Lord. It's hooked to God. Now, that's very important that it's hooked to God, correct? He, he's not going to have that anchor and, like, throw it around and be like, ha-ha, maybe you, you'll make it or maybe you won't. No, it's sure and steadfast. That's the hope we have when we put our faith and trust in the Lord. But there's something very, 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 very important we have to get right. We know that God is holding on to that anchor. But 
many of us wonder, are we attached to the chain that is on that anchor? Many of us have doubts. How can we be sure that we're attached to that anchor? And when one day when God pulls it up, it's kind of an upside down illustration. We don't have to hold on by ourselves and get pulled up. And then when we make it to heaven, God says, nice biceps. Nice upper body strength. Oh, you know, those other people, they just didn't make it. You know what that would be? That would be a works-based religion where we would have to earn our way to salvation. And we're not talking about this. We're talking about grace here. We're talking about the grace of God. So how do we know our soul is attached to that anchor? How do we know that we don't have to hold on? Here's how. Look at verse 20 with me. We're the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That word, that word forerunner means leader. So Jesus has gone before us. How are we confident we are attached to that anchor which is a hope for our soul because life is difficult? We need patience and faith to endure this life. How do we know we're not going to just, oh, fall by the wayside. Oh, you didn't hold on. How do we know we're attached? Because of Jesus and his work on the cross. That's how we know we're attached to this anchor we have for our soul when life is difficult and you can barely hold on. That's how we know. Because Jesus, having become high priest forever according to to the order of Melchizedek. And here's another reason we can know. See, the old priesthood, all it could ever do is make us ceremonially clean. But it could not take away sin. Now, Jesus is according to the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is one of the most interesting characters in the entire Bible. Why? Because he shows up on the scene in Genesis. And then we don't hear from him until Psalms. And then out of nowhere, David says, you are, a, if you know it, help me out. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And it's like, where did that come from? And then he's all over Hebrews. See, he's after a different priesthood. He's a part of a different priesthood. The old things in, in the Old Testament, they were shadows, and Jesus is the reality. See, the ceremonies, the festivals, the feast, the washings, the sacrifices, they were shadows, but Jesus is the reality. He's a removing of shadows. If I hold my hand up, and look down, I see a shadow behind my hand. And what that shadow tells me is the reality is very, very close. See, all of those things in the Old Testament, the tabernacle, were just shadows. And then what, when we celebrate Christmas, that's the unveiling 
of the reality. That's a removing of shadows. So Jesus is this different priesthood, one that can take away sin, and he died once and for all. And that's the God of the universe we worship, which is incredible. Now, I'll leave Melchizedek for chapter 7, but let's kind of do a quick review. Why should our hope increase this morning? Because salvation is not boring. God has promised that there are going to be things that come along with our great salvation. See, God is not going to forget those things we do for him, for his name's sake. We can increase our hope today because as we minister to the saints, something incredible happens that God increases our hope. I don't know how it happens, but I've found that people who are serving in the church have their hope increased. And if you're serving, know that God doesn't forget those small things you do for him when people will forget. Even the ministry might forget those small things we do for him. We can be confident because God will give us the strength so we'll we won't be sluggish or lazy in our faith. We have people who we can imitate. And God will give us the grace when we need faith and patience to endure the hard things of life. But he has promises for us. We can be hopeful because he is a supreme being in the entire world. And we don't have to worry about somebody vetoing him or saying, you don't have that power. He is the one who keeps his promises. And he's the only one who can keep them perfectly. Our hope should increase because this hope we have is an anchor. And we know that both sides are secure. And Jesus is that forerunner who has gone before us. So he will lead the way for us. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come out and they're going to lead us in worship this morning. And we're going to take some time and just pray. Father, I know that these warnings, we would tend to overlook God, we would tend to go, yeah, I got that. Lord, I just pray that we would take these warnings seriously, that we wouldn't coast, that we wouldn't become cavalier, that we wouldn't become those people who neglect their faith, God. But I pray that there would be a seriousness about our walk with you this morning. God, I pray for the most hopeless person in this room today. I pray that you would give them an unusual sense of your hope and just minister to them, God. And I pray for the rest of us that our hope would increase, that our labor of love would just increase because we see you as the greatest treasure in the, this entire world, better than sports or better than leisure activities or boats or toys or anything this world has to offer, God. I pray that we would just love and serve you and hear well done, good and faithful servant. So Lord, just minister to our hearts. In Jesus' name.